0: Interestingly, in the second book, he doesn't say almost excellent Theophilus. He just says, oh Theophilus. He just addresses him like a regular person. Now, some have suggested that that means maybe Theophilus was addressed as uh, a socialite, some kind of um, important person in culture in the first book, and he got perhaps saved. He was born again through the knowledge of Christ. And in the second book, that high social standing didn't matter as much. Luke was showing uh, grace and um, respect to a social title in Theophilus in the first book. In the second book, Theophilus, becoming saved, um, sheds that distinction. And there's almost a a brotherly equality here that we see between Luke and Theophilus. And that's a little bit of speculation, but I find it very compelling. Acts is the natural sequel to Luke. And this is a, a word that I want you to see. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus circle this word, began to do and teach. Luke is implying here that that is the beginning of something. When Christ died and raised again and went up, that was the beginning of the work that he would do. So when he left, it was not the end of Jesus' work. So Luke is implying here that the work is going to continue on even without the bodily presence of Jesus Christ himself. Now, if that was true in the first century, then it's true today because nothing has changed since then. The Spirit came. Jesus hasn't come back yet. Therefore, we are operating under the same ministry circumstances as the early church. Keep that in mind. And so Acts is the continuation. Acts is the implied continuation of that ministry of Jesus Christ. The early efforts of the prophets and the apostles rested completely on the foundation of what had gone before them, which means that there was a historic constraint of Jesus' life and his ministry that was not up for reinterpretation. Sadly, many critics today of, of the life of Christ say, well, we hardly know what Jesus said or did, and how can we be sure that the early church had a clue what they were doing? Uh, that's completely contrary to even the words that Luke writes. He writes, I write these things so that you would be sure of what you've heard, and then he's writing the second book so that you can know how to live it out in the context of the church. They were very secure in the historic realities of Jesus' life. Uh, One of the significant clues, and we need to think about this work of Christ. What was the work that Jesus began? One significant clue we can find actually in the book of Luke, we can see how these patterns um, follow through with with the same author. And I want to read this to you. It's from Luke chapter 4. What was the work that Jesus began to do? It's hard to summarize. But I think Jesus does it most succinctly when he stands up in the synagogue and he quotes Isaiah chapter 61. He reads it to the Jews. He reads it in the synagogue. A very familiar passage if you were a Jew. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of of the Lord's favor. And then he says he rolled the scroll he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning that the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation of jubilee, of freedom. Good news. Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of this good news. So that means everything that I do is the embodiment, it's the fulfillment, it's the ministry of good news to the world. That's the work that he began. And so at the time that God chose, the New Testament says it's very specific when God chose, he sent Christ to accomplish the reality of the kingdom, which had always been promised in the Old Testament, and Jesus displayed the first fruits of that kingdom through his healings, through his warnings to the idolatrous, uh, the idolatrously rich, um, to to the oppressive uh, religious systems, the hypocritical religious systems, all of those things were the early fruit of that kingdom, which also included the care of the vulnerable and, um, and children, the advocacy for those who did not get justice, etc., etc. So this reality began with Christ, and it is being fulfilled gradually. According to Luke, the work began with Christ and is being continued through his church, which means we have to recognize that and that it is being fulfilled gradually through his people. One of the realities that we wrestle with with Christians is that the kingdom came. Jesus said, "Like it's here, it's been fulfilled," and yet there is this long period where the church is at work in the world and, and, and in the world but not of the world, and we await. We're waiting for the final work of that kingdom, for the final dealing with everything that is in opposition to God, everything that raises itself up against God will be dealt with, it will be done away with. Um, The wicked will perish. Those who do not have the forgiveness of Christ will perish. And the final reality of that kingdom will be realized where there will be no more tears, no more death. But it's not here yet. And so that's what we need to wrestle with, is that it's fulfilled in Christ, and yet it's not yet fully here. And so that work is gradually being done through his people. Uh, now, this is critical because if that's our reality, if that's our expectation, uh, there's a word we really need to get here before we see the church just fly off and get all excited about it. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. He appeared to them for forty days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. That's very important for the early church. Because if the early church was nothing more than a social club or a a goodwill exercise, then they could have just gone off and started whenever they wanted. But if the ministry of Christ is to be the activity of the church, then wait until the Spirit comes. Because without the Holy Spirit, all you would have is the establishment of another world religion. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the establishment of a world revolution. That's the difference. When the Spirit inhabits the church, the impossible is impossible. When the church operates, without reference to the indwelling power of God's Spirit, uh, there is nothing but uh, tyranny and fruitless effort and discouragement and frustration. So that's why Jesus says, you need to wait because I have a mission so impossible for you that you just need to chill out in this room and hang out until the Spirit comes. Now, they knew what the Spirit was. They were familiar with this because of John chapter 14. Jesus had talked about the Spirit before. He had given the promise of the Spirit before. This was not a new concept to them. They just didn't know when it was going to come. In fact, Jesus said about the Spirit, about the coming of the Spirit, that the church would do and see greater things than Jesus himself did in his own ministry. And I preached a whole message on that, but the essence of that passage is not that we will do greater miracles, physical miracles, as in we will raise more dead and see more mountains cast into more seas, but that the witness of the truth will be done to a greater extent, and we will see greater spiritual fruit than Jesus ever did. Again, when Jesus preached in his ministry, how many converts did he have? In the hundreds, maybe in the thousands, maybe. Maybe. The church has ever since seen the fruit and the incoming and the harvest of tens of millions of human beings in faith in Jesus Christ. That is the greater work that he called us to. So they recognized that the spirit was going to be necessary for that ministry to go on. And so thankfully they did wait. They did wait. And that came on the day of Pentecost. And I cannot wait to treat that passage with you as a church. Um, But instead of a world religion... We see a world revolution take place, which we now call the Christian faith, but it is anything but another religion comparable to that of the other world religions because it is done in the spirit, in the power of God's own spirit. So, number one, yeah, the ministry is the continuation of Christ and is therefore totally dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, just two verses here, verses six and eight. When they had come together, they asked him, So, Lord, will you at this time restore kingdom to Israel, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power, he's back to the Holy Spirit again, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the second point that we're drawing out here is that the focus of that ministry is not going to be some vague declaration that Jesus is some kind of great guy that we should just follow, because he's like a better teacher than the other wise people or the other philosophers, and he's just a good guy. And sadly, for many of us, our faith has been that a lot of the time. Not to say that that's not good that you would follow Christ, but when it comes to dealing with people who would disagree with you about your faith in Jesus, very often we don't we don't have anything more to say than just that. Well, like. He's good. He's just a good He's a good guy. Like, just read it. Like, don't you want to follow Jesus? And we kind of appeal to this very narrow sense that, well, for me, I just chose Jesus because he's better than the other choices. That's true, but it's not true enough. The focus of the ministry of the, of the church is the kingdom of God. It's the coming of the kingdom. Now, I've also said, that, said this before, and, and I think I can stand by it we say what is the bare essence of the gospel? What is the good news? A thousand different things just popped into the 30 of your minds. What is the good news? Jesus died on the cross for you. Uh, Jesus can give you his Holy Spirit. Um, that you'll, you'll be some people think the good news is that you'll be physically rich. Um some people think that I mean, there's a thousand things that we can think the good news is. What is the good news? I think Jesus said it most succinctly when he said the gospel is that the kingdom is coming. That's, just, that's the good news. That God is not abandoning the world to the condition that it's in, but his kingdom is coming. Now, involved in that is the reality that in order to participate in this kingdom, your sin needs to be dealt with. And that's why we have a king who goes to a cross, because he purifies for himself the people that he's going to fill that kingdom with and so the cross is not separable from that reality but in reality that we re- that the kingdom is coming our expectation that god's kingdom is coming there is in that all sorts of implications uh, the chief of which is that our sin needs to be dealt with on the cross which is why the cross remains the central moment in christian and even human history but it does not it does not replace the reality that the kingdom is coming the cross happened because the kingdom is coming It was to prepare people properly to be the bride of Christ. We are ushered in finally to that final reality. Um, But I'm digressing a little bit here. But the point is that the focus of this ministry is not just to make people necessarily feel a little bit better about this or help a little bit more with that. Those are possible uh, witnesses to the truth. But what we declare, the message that we have, is that God's kingdom is coming. Jesus said even after he died... He spent many days speaking about the what? The kingdom of God. That's how he pumped up his apostles. That's how he got them ready for ministry. He said, I going to talk to you about the kingdom. That's going to be your focus. There, there, there's, a, there's a bad, um, I'll call it an errancy in some Christian circles, where Jesus came and preached the kingdom, but then when the Jews rejected him, Jesus kind of rolled up the kingdom plan tucked it in his pocket and said oh I guess they don't want the kingdom so I'll, I'll bring it back later I'll try again another like take two and so now the kingdom of God has nothing to do with Christian ministry I couldn't disagree anymore because even after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead he spoke to them about the kingdom of God that is the central focus of the church's mission the Bible teaches us is that, is that that's where we have our citizenship In heaven. The heavenly kingdom which will in gradual degrees be made the earthly kingdom. It's our citizenship. It's where our hope is. We do not put our hope in government systems. We do not put our hope in social security. We do not put our hope in our investments. We do not put our hope in our career. We put our hope in the kingdom of God. And it's coming. And so we witness to the reality of the kingdom by the way we live and what we find important as well. And we eagerly await its final reality And our ministry is to invite others to do the same That the king is coming And that you need to bow your knee to this king Repent of your sin and be ready to meet him Jesus tells his own followers right here That the finality of that kingdom Or its final realization uh, Is up to God's time Not our own we were just praying that in our morning prayer this morning. That we don't know how long we'll be running for. We don't know how long it will take. We don't know how long God will leave us together as a family here at Evergreen Chapel. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you make Israel great again? And he said, and they've already proven that they've misunderstood that reality. But Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Paul preached as if Jesus was going to come back maybe in his lifetime the Apostle Paul. I mean, it probably would have shocked them to know that 2,000 years would go by before Christ would come back and establish the final reality of that kingdom. But it does not mean that it's not coming. It does not mean that it's slow. Peter says this. He says, "You, you mock and you say, like, where's the promise of Jesus coming? It's been so long. It's been like 40 years. And he says, you don't know anything. He says, God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance. It's his grace that he's waiting. Because when the king comes back, he's not coming to deal with your sin. He's coming to reign and to squash his enemies. So that's a reality that's that's coming. But 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 in the meantime, we will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our focus. We don't know when the final reality is going to come. And that's why focusing on the moment Jesus comes back is it, foolishness. It's not for us to know. What we need to dwell in and, and appreciate and meditate on is the power of the Spirit in us as a church and as a, in us as individuals. He says, you want to talk about when the kingdom's finally going to be realized? I want to tell you about what's going to happen beforehand. You're going to receive the power of the Spirit. That's what you need to know, church. And that you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. You're not just going to get the Holy Spirit so that you can do tricks. So that you can do flashy things and speak in other languages and those the Spirit did many incredible things. The power of the Spirit is primarily for the witness to the truth. It's to empower you and your mind and your heart and everything about you to be a witness to the truth. What a gift. I want to also draw your attention to the fact that this is the natural progression of the whole Bible. If I can say it in just a few sentences. God sets up paradise in Genesis. Humanity in Adam and Eve gives it up. In favor of ruling himself. He wants to become his own God. He and she. Uh, God from there sees that people. He calls uh, a man named Abraham. And from there there's a nation. And they go into slavery. Into Egypt. God saves them. Pulls them out of slavery. And calls them a nation. He gives them a name. He gives them a law. He makes them a society. He makes them a people. They rebel continuously. God promises a final rescue. From every enemy. And to secure um, a finally realized kingdom. That kingdom is delivered in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it will be finally realized and completed at His second coming. When, as 1 Corinthians tells us, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Christ is at present ruling, and He is piece by piece subjecting everything to His feet. We don't see everything in subjection to His feet yet either. And on the back of these invitations, I said something in line with that because people often criticize Christianity by saying, You worship a God, but how the world is so bad. Where is your God in the midst of all of this suffering and rebellion? And I put that on the back here because I want the people that we invite to recognize that we recognize that things aren't there yet. It's not perfect yet, but Christ is at present reigning, and he is subjecting all things to his feet, and in the end, the last enemy to be defeated will be death. <laughs> What good news is that? And that we are, in the meantime, carrying out the ministry of this great king. That's amazing. And you know what? There's no age limit on that. You can be five years old and carrying out this ministry of the king. You can be 85 years old and effectively carrying out the ministry of this king. There is no limit on your physical ability, on your intellect, on your age, on your Bank account numbers. The church is, is a unification of the most diverse group of people in human history. Most of us don't even speak the same language. And yet God is establishing his purposes through us. And not just us. Not just our little holy huddle here in Smith Falls. But across Canada, across Ontario across North America in places where we don't understand the languages they speak or their customs God is doing his work through them in Brazil in China in Iran God is doing incredible work and in advancing his kingdom and subjecting the rulers and authorities to his rule in places all over the world even as we speak This is the natural arc of scripture that God is bringing his rule as we read this morning from the Psalms he rules in all the earth. And so the kingdom is the focus of this ministry. Number three, verses 8 to 11. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess that was in my next section, but the witness part. Um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is anticipating a global kingdom, He's not anticipating a regional one. You'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up in heaven. In other words, he's coming back. And he's coming back bodily, visibly and so number three in essence the guys are saying don't just stand there looking into heaven Church don't just stand there looking around and hoping for something else the angels push their attention away from the sky and put their attention on the interim saying Jesus will one day come back but don't stand there gazing into heaven until he does. Indirectly, and this is kind of where we're going to go with our application. This passage directs us to the office of Christ. We realize that his ministry is the foundation and it's the history behind the church and what, what we do. The advance of his kingdom is our focus. But how that's carried out is by emulating the office of Jesus Christ and I want to talk a little bit about that and and I admit that this is a a little bit of a launch off of our passage but I think it's the application and I and I'm also trying to to draw a wider foundation for us as a church as we go through the book of Acts because if our foundation is very narrow with narrow glasses on the, the taller we build the more wobbly the building but if we can establish a firm footing of what ministry in Jesus Christ looks like I think we're going to have a lot better time interpreting and understanding the rest of the book and how it applies to us in Smith Falls or Kempville or Perth or wherever it is that we live because we recognize that his work has already begun we recognize that we're called to continue to labor in his work by the power of the Holy Spirit and we recognize that it is his work and his office which we which he then leaves to the church now, why do I say his office? Why do I say being bestowed? It's almost like he handed something off to us. And this comes from 2 Corinthians 5, where it says that he, Jesus, has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He has given us a mantle. He has given us a task. And in his ministry. The task that we're given is ministry. Now I've talked about that as being a buzzword in the church, like, oh, the ministry there is so great. In pastors, we always talk about, are you full-time in ministry, or what do you do in ministry? We are all in ministry. The church is given the ministry of reconciliation. I'm just given as one part of that ministry to help you do ministry. What does that ministry look like? And I want to talk about the threefold. How do we continue that work? By observing and emulating the threefold office of Jesus Christ. Jesus brought together three key offices, offices that we find in the Older Testament. They could only be united under one person, and that's the Son of God himself. No other man, even in the Old Testament, was even permitted to bleed over into different offices. Meaning that if you were a prophet, you, you couldn't go be a priest as well. And if you were a priest, you definitely couldn't be a king, because it's too much power to allocate in one person. But guess who could perfectly bring those offices together? Jesus himself. So Jesus brings together the offices of prophet, priest, and king perfectly. Without ever trampling on anybody. Without ever overstepping or being unkind. Jesus brings these together in perfect harmony. And I want to look at these three offices and, and demonstrate how this is our call as the church. Our call is to bring these offices to bear on our world and inside the church. And the first is the prophetic. The first is the prophetic. The prophet, the priest, and the king. The first is the prophetic. This speaks to the task of speaking and proclaiming the word of God. Now these are things we're going to see through the book of Acts, which is why we're beginning here. It's the the task and the motivation to speak the word of God. It's a disruptive task. Part of the office. It's the disruptive part of our task. We stand in some ways in the prophetic sense as distinct from our world. As not drowning in the, in the world, which is why the Bible says not to be stained by the world, but to remain pure and yet in the world so that we can speak into it. And so the prophet, the prophetic nature, stands in some ways separate from culture, but speaks into it with the word of God and the truth of God. We warn and we invite them to come to God. Prophets in the Old Testament were called by God almost always against their natural desire. Almost always. Uh, If you read Moses, his call, he didn't want to do it. If you read Isaiah's call, he was really discouraged about his personal qualifications. If you read Jeremiah, he was like, oh, I'm just the wrong guy, I'm too young. If you look at Jonah, he went as far as to just bolt the other direction and in every single one of those cases, even um, Hosea, it, read the beginning sections of all the prophetic books and see how God calls a prophet. In every single one of those instances, God had his way. God called the prophet and said, I have a word for to give to you, to give to the people. This is the, this is the exercise of the office of Christ for us as the church in the midst of the world. We have a word from you from God. We have the word of God. We've been given it. To sit on it and to hide it is to abandon our calling to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. He says, you will be my witnesses. He says in Matthew 28, you will teach them to obey all that I commanded you. That's a prophetic office. That's a prophetic role. Anytime you witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, you are being a prophet in somebody's life. A prophet calling somebody out of darkness we offer warning but at the same time we offer hope the prophet is to deal with the warning and the harsh reality of rebelling against god but it also offers the hope of coming back to him it's spoken in love and it's spoken in confidence this is the very nature of jesus life john 1 says he that he, john 1 says that jesus was the word from heaven he was the word of god come into the darkness he came as a revelation as a prophetic witness to God Jesus was so much more than that but he was primarily a revelation of God to people it was God speaking to us in our ignorance it was God shedding light into our darkness 1 Peter 4.11 says whoever speaks in the context of Christian ministry whoever speaks <coughs> should speak as one who speaks the oracles of God right here in the New New Testament. You should speak as if you are a prophet. When you are witnessing to the truth of who God is and who Jesus Christ is, you do not say, well, this is something interesting that I learned and you may take this or leave. it." The prophets never spoke like that. The prophets said, here is the truth. You must obey. And we do that in love. But the prophetic office, the prophetic nature does not hedge our bets. We know the truth and we know that we are called to speak it Um, Dan Allender, who I borrow heavily from um, to understand these three offices, said that the prophet invites the comfortable to see themselves in a new, disturbing light. If people are not uncomfortable with the way that you witness about Jesus Christ, you may not be speaking prophetically. You may be watering down your message. The message of Christ is uncomfortable because it demands repentance. It demands a shift in attitude. It demands a humiliation before God. Dan Allender says this, no prophet exists today as in the Old Testament. Let's be clear about that in this church. But the work of a prophet today is in essence no different. I don't think God is going to raise up one individual here and say, well, this is the resident prophet of Evergreen Chapel. That's not a ministry that continues the way it did in the Old Testament. But as we carry the prophetic office, he, or she, is a bearer of the word of God, a spokesman for righteousness, a poet of hope. This is Dan or not me. His domain is the soul. Who is this person? Anyone willing to think deeply about the human condition, speak truth, and bear the consequence of being viewed as an enemy of the status quo. Are you comfortable with being viewed as an enemy of the status quo? Disruption will not be immediately pre- appreciated, nor will it be honored. Most often, it is met with attack. He will learn to speak in a way that calls the heart to a new vision of horror and hope. That's the prophetic office of the church. Wow, that's a high calling. And I'll leave that there for now and move on to the priestly role. The priestly role. The prophet disturbs and disrupts, and the priest comforts. The priests were the servants of the people toward God. The, servant, the, the priests in the Old Testament served God's people by connecting them with God through sacrifice and prayer. Uh, they sympathized with the people's sins. That's what a priest did. A priest was most in tune with the sins of the people who he helped bring to God. That's one of the primary roles of the priest was to atone for sin through blood sacrifice. The priest was to sprinkle blood on the curtain of behind which was the holy place before he entered in on behalf of the people, and he only went there once a year. The Bible says that Jesus entered the holy of holies once by means of his own blood. Jesus was called a priest, but not a priest after the Levites, the sons of Aaron. Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a different kind of priest. And I don't know the full significance of that, and we definitely don't have time to explore it this morning. But one of the critical qualities about his priesthood is sympathy. If you look through Hebrews 6 through 10, we see a priest in Jesus Christ who sympathizes, who comforts. Jesus wasn't so far above us the people that he came to love, that we were left alone in our condition. Hebrews teaches us specifically that he lived a life as a man so that he could sympathize with everything that we went through. He was tempted in all the ways that you and I are tempted. And so likewise, our prophetic role of disruptive, prophetic speech into people's lives must be married with our priestly role to comfort people, to help them walk through moments of doubt and difficulty. And the Psalms are one of the greatest tools for this. It's been described that the Psalms are are, are books of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Sometimes people live with a totally clear view of who God is. Sometimes they are shaken by their circumstances and filled with doubt and fear and even sin. And the priest and prophet comes along and teaches the word of God and comforts and points people back and reorients them back to who God is. Uh, psalm 73 is one of my favorite where the writer says, I used to envy wicked people. I used to look at them and think their lives are so good. Why am I suffering here for, for the name of God? And then he says, but then I went into his holy temple and I realized the reality behind all of this. this is a, That's a psalm of reorientation. And the priest walks alongside people and comforts. We sympathize with people and who they are. Our ministry will be fruitless if all we do is the prophetic. To disturb people and to rattle them and then to give no side-by-side love to them and understanding and sympathy with where they're at. This is how the ministry of Christ is carried out. We must speak prophetically, but we must comfort priestly Exodus chapter 19, which was echoed and repeated in the New Testament by Peter. God says to his people, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Peter goes so far in the New Testament to say we are a royal priesthood. We are a priesthood. We are the priesthood of God. It's absolutely beyond question that the church exercises its priestly duty together and as a witness to the world. Um, Allender also writes about the the priest. While the prophet disturbs, the priest comforts and deepens faith. He recalls the deeds of God in the past. She is an expert in the heart, willing to feel deeply about the human condition and to bear the weight of reminding others of God. In comfort and in celebrating, the priest never ignores the darkness of the heart. I read an interesting article that talks about how the priest is often misunderstood as manipulating God or ignoring God's commands. Because sometimes we get close to sinners and those who are struggling, as Jesus did, and people want to say, hey, you're not being prophetic. You're not calling them out. The priest never ignores the darkness of the heart, but we do so in a loving and priestly fashion. The priest invites the heart to move into godly service. Which brings us to the third office, the kingly office. The Christian faith we have to recognize is an an act of faith. There's no such thing as internalizing your, your Christian faith and just living it out on your own. There is a whole series of implications for what it means to follow Christ. And those things we recognize in the light of that third piece of the office of Christ, which is the kingly office. Now, Adam was God's first vice-regent, which means to carry out somebody's royal decree. It's a ruler on the earth. God set up Adam in the garden and commanded him to cultivate his rule and his domain. He called him to rule over it, to manage it well. Now, he blew it by abandoning God, by thinking, oh, I'm not just going to rule over this. I'm going to be as a god to myself, right? That's what Satan tempted Eve with. The kings of Israel of which there were many, were supposed to lead Israel in battle, to safety, to carry out righteous judgments. Write down First Kings 3.16, find out what a king was to do in, in righteous judgment. I don't have time to talk about that, but First Kings 3.16, what a king is supposed to do. The king was a role in the Old Testament that ultimately man failed to fulfill, didn't he? And yet Christ comes to fulfill that failed calling of man. Christ came to bring a kingdom, which makes him a king, logically, right? Uh, Which is not any more explicit anywhere than it is in Jesus' conversation with Pilate in his trial. He says, are you a king? Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. My kingdom is not in this world. My kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. And so Jesus says, well, do the math, Pilate. I have a kingdom and it's coming. And so Pilate takes this and realizes that the charge that Jesus is to be crucified for is that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Not just that he claimed to overturn the Jewish <laughs> nation, but that he claimed to be a king. Jesus was explicit about that. Don't also miss Peter's designation in our priesthood. How does he distinguish, how does he qualify our priesthood? That it is a royal priesthood, a ruling priesthood. Royal has leadership connotations to it, management connotations to it, which means that we are a ruling order on the earth. God has, in some ways, instilled in Christ this threefold office which Christ has given to the church, which means that in some way we we establish and we mediate the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in our own lives. That's what the whole book of Proverbs was about, if you remember it's all about extending the Lordship of Christ by applying the law of God to every area of life. doesn't mean you'll do it perfectly. Absolutely not does not mean you'll do it perfectly. But it does mean that that's our focus. It does mean that that's what we do. And the implications of that are, are incredible for the church. If we have a kingly role then in some ways we need to talk about what it means to manage our resources for the glory of God. We need to protect and guide the young underneath us to fear and love the Lord. Which is why we do Christian education. It's why we insist on the sovereignty of the family for primary instruction. That's the place where children are to be nurtured and taught of the Lord. This is why we do our best at our jobs. It's why we show up when we say we're going to show up. It's why we clean up the camera after we, do di- after we eat dinner. I mean, it's as simple and menial as that, and it's as significant and incredible as lawmaking if you're ever given the opportunity to serve in parliament or as prime minister. These are all the way, what we do with what God has given us is, is our kingly function on the earth. It's to go about protecting those in our charge and to manage well the domain that God has given us to live in. These three things come together in Christ, which He passes on to the church. Listen to um, Allender one more time on the King. He planned strategies, he negotiated alliances, and he applied the Word of God to daily conflicts. That's that First Kings chapter three that I gave you. Kings of the Old Testament often allowed for worship of the false gods associated with the nations with which they had formed alliances. That's a problem, right? Israel is starting to worship the false gods and the nations that they had teamed up with. This led to grave injustice, perversion, loss of freedom, and he doesn't write this, but also loss of life, innocent blood being shed because of false religion. Allender writes, Who is king? Anyone willing to know the truth, train in wisdom, and bear the weight of leading and protecting those under his or her care. His work is not limited to any single field, meaning whatever you do for a living or whatever you do with your time. But at his core, he knows that change will not occur without the application of wisdom to the diverse demands of life. And So every time we apply God's word in any area of our life, whether it be our children, whether it be at our our medical practice, whether it be in the office, whether it be on the garbage truck, when we apply God's word, we season the world around us as opposed to being stained by it. We influence those around us. We exercise our kingly role simply by applying God's word. Isn't that amazing? It's not complicated. It doesn't mean you need to go run to be mayor or run for prime minister. It's not ruling in an earthly sense. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It didn't mean that his kingdom is not in the world. It's just not carried out in the same way that we see and we expect from earthly rulers, which is why the Jews at first were so confused. They thought the ruling of this kingdom would be power and might and sword and destruction. And Jesus said, no, you apply my word and you will be rulers on the earth. Now, what are the dangers present in thinking about ministry in this way? There are dangers that we need to recognize and to search our own hearts out and I believe as we go through Acts we're going to see ministry carried out in, for the most part a godly fashion we're going to see mistakes made but what what are the dangers in seeing our ministry as the extension of Christ's ministry prophet, priest, and king it's to think of these things in pride it's to think of these things in a self-promoting way that oh I'm, I'm like a prophet I'm like a priest I am like a king. To think of those things in pride is to totally disqualify yourself from ever carrying them out in any fashion that's productive for the kingdom of God. A. A. Hodge, who was principal at Princeton Theological Seminary way back when, it was, when they actually taught um, pastors to love God, back when Princeton was a godly institution, A.A. Hodge says, I must mature in all areas if I am to fulfill the task of offering others a picture of Christ. Which is what we're called to do, right? To offer others a picture of Christ. And if Christ is prophet, priest, and king, we must offer that picture. But A.E. Hodge says, I must mature in all areas if I am to fulfill that task. Otherwise, the picture of the task will be perverted. A prophet will become a Gnostic. A priest will become a charlatan and a king will become a despot. That's the risk. Without maturity in Christ, without the Holy Spirit in us to carry out this ministry, that's what we'll become. We'll become a harsh and and hard to understand Gnostic. We'll become an irrelevant, self-absorbed charlatan. Or we will become tyrannical and bossy. I don't know any other word for it, but... These pictures must come together in humility under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so, because of that, it's only in Jesus Christ that we will realize our potential for ministry in this world. We need to adorn ourselves in Christ, which means to pursue Him, to pursue Him humbly and with great effort to emulate this threefold ministry. Now, by way of conclusion, I want to encourage you that these that this office can be carried out in the most simple and mundane of ways. When you meet for coffee with a friend and they're going through something that they don't understand and they don't know the Lord, when you speak the truth of God to them, you are being a prophet to that person. When you come alongside and comfort somebody, when you knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I noticed that you know you haven't been out in a while, like, can I bring you a coffee? Can I bring you some groceries? Can I shovel your driveway? We exercise a sympathy to those around us that is the priestly office of Christ. And anytime we do anything where we're just supplying God's word and believing that it is true, we exercise our kingly role as the church. It's very simple. But I think it's a helpful lens for us to see what are we doing with our time and how do we interact with people around us? How do we truly witness? How do we truly uh, preach and, and spread the gospel? We do it by understanding the threefold way that Jesus did it. And we're going to be imperfect, but unlike the Old Testament, we all have the Holy Spirit within us, which means we are all prophets, priests, and kings, and and, and not in a separate way. Some of you might be much more gifted in the priestly role. Some of you much more in the discernment and leading role. Some of you much more in the prophetic and speaking role. But nonetheless, it is embodied in all of us. Each of us have the spirit of Christ to carry that out.